Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. You're listening to the Irish Times Inside Politics podcast. It's Wednesday, March the 8th, and you're very welcome to the weekly politics podcast from the Irish Times. I am Hugh Linehan, and joining me in studio today are political editor Pat Leahy, Sarah Barden from our politics team, and recently returned Washington correspondent and currently journalist with our portfolio, Simon Carswell. Later on, we're going to be discussing the current state of play in the Fine Gael leadership election, and we'll be looking ahead also to how the first St. Patrick's Day celebration of the Trump presidency might pan out. Remember that you can find us on irishtimes.com slash podcasts, or you can subscribe via iTunes or your preferred podcast provider and if you're already a subscriber we'd be very grateful if you take a moment to share or recommend the podcast but first yesterday the doll debated the discovery of extensive human remains of infants and babies on the grounds of a former mother and baby home in Tuam. Um, politically Pat what is the situation with this now? Well, the government discussed this at its meeting yesterday. There's already a commission of inquiry, of course, into the uh, finding of the remains at Tum and which will cover, I think, 14 uh, mother and baby homes around the country in total, plus a sample of four county homes, which in some cases catered uh, for uh, women to have their babies, as it was then out of wedlock. Um so where this is at, I suppose, is that there is a clamour for the commission to be broadened to cover uh, a much greater array of similar institutions or at least Im- institutions that performed in part a similar function. So Magdalene Laundries and, possibly, and possibly also other... Victims groups, survivors groups have pointed out that there are... Uh, 180 or so institutions around the country that uh, performed um, uh, that performed uh, a similar function and so they want all of them investigated. What the Cabinet uh, discussed and decided yesterday was that there would be a, a, a brief scoping exercise to examine the possibility of, um, of the extension uh, of, the, of the inquiry. It will need, of course, to discuss this with the existing commission, because that has been set up, it has legal powers, it is doing its work under Judge Yvonne Murphy. They may not relish the task of being of having their workload increased tenfold. Uh, they may not think that is a viable uh, course of action for that inquiry uh, uh, to do, but that remains to be decided. So I suppose... As of now, where it remains is that the possibility of a much broader inquiry remains open but has not yet been decided upon. Sarah, what do you think would be the purpose of such an inquiry? I'm not saying at all that there aren't matters here which need to be interrogated and explored more, but it it strikes me that one would need to be very clear about 
why and for whom and how will one will be going about such a process? I think it's quite difficult because essentially everybody here is on the same page. They want to establish the truth of what happened and also to give the families involved the uh, justice that they so thoroughly deserve. Um, the government are in quite a tricky uh, situation because this information came to their door, door in uh, late of late 2014, I think it was October 2014, when the Irish Mail on Sunday published uh, the story. In February 2015, after a clamour of controversy, they eventually established a a commission of investigation. Um, Now we're in a position where I suppose there's another clamour of controversy and then, as as, um, Pat said, there is widespread calls for the commission of investigation to be broadened to um, other, other homes. It's very difficult, I suppose, for the government to take that decision because there are there is Judge Yvonne Murphy has an enormous uh, workload already on her plate to establish, uh, to broaden the commission of investigation would only serve to prolong her investigation. Um, and there is the question as to whether or not Judge Yvonne Murphy can actually get to the bottom of what actually happened here and whether this should be a job for um, Angarda Siakana or other, or other uh, state bodies. So... I think while now there is this sort of ongoing calls for the commission to be extended, perhaps it's best for Judge Yvonne Murphy to make that decision based on the work that she has uh, carried out and conducted thus so far. Um, And I don't think there has been any kind of formal proposal put to her from the Minister for Children, Catherine Sapone. You know, it's a tightrope here, really. The, the, The worst thing I suppose the government could do is to overburden Judge Yvonne Murphy so that she cannot complete the work that she already has has underway um, and prolong the investigation and prolong the suffering of the families that are involved. And in addition to those sort of political realities which clearly need to be trashed out, there's a, there's been a sort of a, a, an emotional outpouring, I think it's fair to say, over the last few days. just want to have a listen here to the Taoiseach yesterday on the Dole. As a society, uh, in the so-called good old days, we did not just hide away the dead bodies of tiny human beings. We dug deep and we dug deeper still to bury our compassion, to bury our mercy, to bury our humanity itself. You see, no nuns broke into our homes to kidnap our children. We gave them up to what we convinced ourselves was the nuns' care. We gave them up maybe to spare them the savagery of gossip, the wink and the elbow language of delight in which the holier-than-thous were particularly fluent. Now, Simon, this isn't the first time that the Taoiseach has given a powerful and resonant speech, and in many ways a carefully scripted speech in response to revelations of this sort, whether it be the cover-up of child abuse by the Catholic Church or or a couple of other issues too. Um, Reading um, Miriam Lord in today's Irish Times, is she suggesting that these kinds of speeches are starting to wear a little thin? What do you think? I th- I read Miriam's piece this morning and I thought that. I mean, I thought that this is reminded me very much of the speech he gave um, lashing the Vatican that time when they got involved. Um, I think that he needs to follow this up with actions. Um, one of the things that kind of jumps out at me at this whole uh, issue is is that deal that was done by Michael Woods back in the early noughties. I think it was 2002, Pat, around yeah. then. And that, that deal was <clears throat> exceptionally favourable uh, for the church. And I think basically put a cap on the amount that the church could be. Yeah, and there was an indemnity around it as well. Mm-hmm. But yet the cost of these, the restitution of these cases, is in somewhere of the region of north of a of a billion euro. 
and that was exceptionally favourable for the church. I think the value to the state was in the order of about 128 um, million euros. So obviously they need to go back and look at that again. Um, I think it's all well and good setting up inquiries, but um, there needs to be some action taken uh, how, to provide some sort of compensation. How realistic is that, Pat? Well, th- that deal has actually already been reopened, was reopened when Rory Quinn was Minister for Education. Simon's absolutely right. It was in the... Uh, I reported on it pretty extensively at the time. It was in the dying days of the previous government, actually. The election had already taken place uh, in 2002. Fianna Fáil were going back into power, but Michael Woods was still the Minister for Education um, for a period of time uh, before a new minister was appointed and the deal, uh, a deal was signed with the religious orders, uh, with, um, I think it was 18 religious orders uh, at the time, uh, in which they received in return for $128 million in cash and property transfers some of those property transfers have not yet taken place and many of them were uh, the sort of facilities such as schools and that which had been funded although the property may have been owned by the orders much of the development of the properties had been uh, funded by the state over the previous 30 or 40 years um, but that deal has been reopened and the orders uh, have or some of the orders many of them pleaded penury um, Others of the orders have uh, made further transfers or have pledged to make further transfers. So uh, much that has been got out of those particular religious orders, I think, has been uh, has been got out of them at this stage. What that what that hasn't uh, what that but the state has still ended up because of that in indemnity that it offered to the orders in 2002. The state has ended up with costs, as Simon says, I think the total cost is about 1.4 billion, take away the contribution of the orders. The total cost to the taxpayers being about 1.2 billion. And to some billion. extent, isn't there some logic to that? Because, I mean, when you, when, you, when you start attempting to assign responsibility and accountability and in some cases holding people to account in financial terms for some of these events on behalf of victims or victims' families, I mean, the state and the, these religious institutions are inextricably entwined, aren't they? In many cases, they were acting as agents of the state. To they were in, in many of those cases. And the 2002 deal covered residential institutions um, that uh, uh, children suffered uh, abuse, physical or sexual, at the hands of, uh, of religious orders. So there clearly was some measure of responsibility and perhaps culpability on the part of state uh, state bodies going back several decades at and, the, and in at turn the same and in turn a shared social responsibility for the people for, 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 to to the people of Ireland more generally who well, true. it has been pointed well, of, out were well aware to a true, but of, of, of whom the state on. is the political expression yeah. so uh, uh, you know which is something that is something that's often that's often forgotten at the same time i think going back and looking at the 2002 deal and i suppose we're slightly off the point here in terms of uh, of current affairs but i think it would be difficult to argue that there was a fair spread of uh, certainly financial responsibility taken between as between the orders and the state at that time. And the, circumstances, the orders the circumstances got an incredible of the deal, deal. The circumstances of the deal, as, as you described there, were hardly satisfactory as well. Uh, they were deeply, mm. deeply questionable and were obviously so at the time. Uh, in hindsight, they look even, uh, uh, you know, they look even more questionable in my opinion. What about the responsibility of those of those religious organisations now? Let, let's have a quick listen to Breed Smith, who was also speaking in the Dáil yesterday. When is the church, with all its lucrative lands and wealth, going?
going to be made to pay back? When are we going to get them out of our lives, out of our beds, out of our hospitals and out of our schools? Now, Sarah, this was a, something which was brought up particularly yesterday in relation to Bon Secours. The Bon Secours order who ran the two and mother and baby, baby home, there is a connection between uh, that organisation and Bon Secours, which runs a number of private medical institutions now, I think. Uh, is it legitimate to make that connection? Um, <clears throat> I think it, I suppose it's a, it's a difficult one because Bon Secure, uh, as the Taoiseach pointed out yesterday in his response to Breach Smith, has done you know extraordinarily good work as well, and it shouldn't be I suppose tainted, uh, um, you know, with the with the allegations that have come to light. I think essentially we're going sort of just slightly off the point. The reality is um, that the government was well aware of the uh, what was happening in 2014. Um, and what the, when the shot got up yesterday to, to make his uh, grand speech criticising what had happened, he, did, he failed, to, to failed to address the point that he was aware for over three years of these allegations. Um, and what he tried to do was, was on script, um, express some deep anger and frustration at, at what had been discovered. He tried to make it reminiscent of his Cologne speech, of his Magdalene speech. But as Miriam says in her piece today, uh, the words ring extremely hollow because what he was de- dealing with when he dealt with the uh, widespread abuse of um, pre- uh, the clerical uh, sex abuse in Cloyne and with the Magdalene laundries was he was dealing with legacy issues, whereas this issue comes right up to the present and 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 the fact that Mr. Kenny and the former Minister for Children, James Riley, um, and indeed the current Minister for Children were, you know, are sort of in in some way they were fully aware of what 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 was going on, but they chose to ne- to neglect it and they chose to ignore it, and now we're in a position where it's come to light due to the work of Ju- Judge Yvonne Murphy, um, and everybody's expressing widespread widespread anger and widespread uh, frustration. But the reality is that most. Uh, most people in Leinster House were aware of this. I mean, it was it was published in the media, quite widespread. Fianna Fáil TD at the time, Colm Keaveney, got up and asked for an apology for the for the families involved, and everybody thought, you know, turned a blind eye to it, including members of the media, because everybody didn't want to address the reality of what was happening. And now we're in a situation where we have hard facts, and uh, everybody is is jumping up and down about it. But I just think. Politically, this is very damaging for the government and for, in particular, for the Taoiseach because, you know, he 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 got up yesterday trying to um, trying to mimic what he had said about Cloyne and Magdalene, but actually, uh, he was quite hip, uh, he was it was quite a quite a um, damning speech from him if you looked at it on paper, but actually the way it was delivered was quite poor. What does that say about the Taoiseach at this late stage in in his career, Pat? It, it, he was never a man noted for the quality of his oratory, except on these particular instances in relation to these these, these scandals in relation to the church and, and, and to abuse. But maybe that has worn a bit thin, maybe because it is so late in his tenure. Yeah, I think there may be something there. I think Sarah's being a little bit uh, harsh in terms of her assessment of the culpability or otherwise of the Taoiseach. What, I mean, I suppose what happened in 2014 is that these the cases were brought to light. There was um, there was excellent media reporting on them. In response to that, a commission of inquiry was set up to ascertain, you know, legally standoverable 
uh, facts and and that is the stage that we're at with it now with the reports of uh, of last week. So to the extent that the Taoiseach and former ministers were aware of what was going on, they were aware of the allegations and I suppose the government would argue that it took steps at that time to assess the veracity of, uh, of those allegations. On your point about, uh, I suppose, the time running out on the Taoiseach and this sort of oratory yesterday, which was certainly from the school the Cloyne School of of Enda Kenny Oratory, if we can, uh, if we can call it that, you know, I, I think there is there is very obviously given the reporting of the matter this morning and Miriam Lord's uh, comments in our own paper, especially there is certainly the case that uh, it's certainly obvious that the patience of some people is running out uh, with Enda Kenny. Will his uh, will his comments yesterday, will his speech yesterday be viewed with similar impatience by by voters? I'm not sure, but in a sense, politically, it doesn't really matter. We know that I mean, it's perhaps he's going a, anyway. because he's going anyway. It's maybe a sign or a signal that uh, Enda's political sell-by date is rapidly approaching if it hasn't already passed. And when that happens, I suppose, the impact of anything that you say uh, is diminished. And I I think that's probably the case at the moment. What about the idea, Simon, and this is, I have to confess, this is my idea and it may be completely unjustified, is that the problems with that speech as identified by Miriam yesterday, can I speak of a larger problem when Irish people talk about these issues of the past, that there's this kind of chest-beating, mea culpa, we all did wrong, uh, isn't it terrible, aren't we the worst little country in the world, which is really a very unsatisfactory way of actually dealing with these histories of our past, and then ends up in endless, highly expensive inquiries, which deliver very little satisfaction or shed perhaps as much light as should be shed on what actually happened. Yeah, I mean, I think the investigation is into an Ireland of the past. This is the problem. This is what we're kind of purging ourselves of that this this Ireland existed at a particular time. These children were treated appallingly at that time. Uh, There was no uh, measures in place to protect them in society. In fact, the state abdicated the responsibilities of the church and there were no checks and balances on the behaviour of the church. And that's of a period. I mean, that period has passed. And this is what makes it very tricky when it comes to investigating what went on and who is culpable. Um, I mean, I heard mention on the radio this morning about, you know, two elderly bond secure nuns who may have had some involvement. And, you know, there's a sense where we don't want to go after them. There's no kind of witch hunt with regard to who is responsible. But that's the difficulty is a lot of these people are no longer around. um, And yet uh, people feel great pain. The fact that the state has not stood up and said this happened and we apologize. And I think that the speech that Enda Kenny gave will go some way to help those people. But I think it needs to go much further and I think there needs to be uh, very public declarations to try and ease the pain that these people f- suffered and the fact that you know the, um, the people went and searched for parents and birth parents and were unable to get access to records and I think that is shocking. I think the lack of transparency there where people can't actually find uh, the do, like trace back the the records uh, their own personal records. I think that's horrifying that they can't actually access. Well, that I mean, you, I mean, you've just come back from the states, a place where you know many people over there think that their political system is broken in many ways. But one thing that they certainly do far better than we do here is mount vigorous, rigorous inquiries with the amount of speed, uh, amount of speed that ensures that 
you know, justice has a chance of being delivered rather than being denied just by just through delay. But that's largely driven by two things, lawyers and money. Um, when lawyers get involved, there's legal actions. And if you look at all of the kind of public watchdogs that exist and independent watchdogs that exist in Washington, they're, <clears throat> they're largely um, funding lawsuits and they take legal actions against state bodies. They take legal actions against the federal government to get access to records. And there's the threat of huge payouts by the courts, which forces people uh, to make decisions. And I don't think, I think there is a, obviously a culture of litigation in Ireland, but nothing on the same level that it would exist in the United States. Um, on my travels in the US, I came across a number of people who actually had been um, adopted into the US. And in one case in particular, it was the husband of a, of a former US senator, Mary Landrieu. Uh, her husband, Frank Snellings, was adopted out of a home in uh, Tivoli Road in Dunleary. And he went through the Church of Ireland system and it was much more uh, transparent. He was able to get records. He was able to find out his um, birth mother. Uh, and another a friend of mine, Katrina Palmer, who um, eventually she wrote a book recently about uh, her relationship with her birth mother and was able to get access to those records. But there are many cases in the the famous one is the case of Philomene Lee and couldn't get access. Her son, both she and her son were looking for each other and tragically couldn't find each other because they couldn't get access to those records. And I think that, you know, sunlight is good medicine. I think we should open up the records and let people find out what happened, what do, what records do the state does the state hold, and what records do the religious orders hold? You know, it's a very and strange it, use of freedom of information around some of this too, as well. And know? if needs be, um, maybe there's grounds. I don't know what grounds there would be legally to actually try and access that information. But the religious orders should open up the records and let people um, find out not just who ran these institutions, but also just create a paper trail for people so they can you know put together the pieces that they uh, that are missing in their lives. Right. Well, on a on a related uh, but some somewhat lighter note. I think the Dance of the Seven Veils for the Fine Gael leadership uh, continues this week. Uh, here's Simon Harris. Will you be a candidate when Enda Kenny announces his departure? No, I won't. Uh, no, I won't. And uh, I'll depart with the, the usual niceties in relation to the fact that there is no vacancy and that's a matter for the Taoiseach and all of that is true. Um, but I've thought about this. Um, it's a flasher to be asked by a number of people to consider it. Um, but the time is not right for me, quite frankly. Um, I have a very busy portfolio, uh, which I'm working very hard at. And quite frankly, I don't yet have enough experience. Sarah, OK, that's one, one out. Uh, but we gather possibly another one in. There's kind of lots of talk about Francis Fitzgerald this week. Yeah, uh, Frances Fitzgerald um, has said that she is seriously considering contesting for the Fine Gael leadership, as is the Minister for Education, Richard Bruton, so it could potentially be a four-horse race. But I think um, it is widely expected that it will come down to Leo Varadkar and Simon Coveney. I think what you witnessed over the past number of weeks with regards to Simon Harris was him, I suppose, throwing the ball in really um, to try and gain a bit of leverage um, amongst Simon Coveney and, and Leo Varadkar um, and knowing that he doesn't have the support as the Irish Times poll showed at the weekend he was on 2% um, knowing that he doesn't have any sort of significant level of support it was time to uh, give the game up really and uh, take his name out of the race Francis Fitzgerald on the other hand seems a lot more uh, serious about her intentions to lead uh, from those close to her say that she had always intended to contest the leadership when the Taoiseach stood down and despite the recent controversies in which she's been embroiled in, in particular her handling of the case of uh, Morris McCabe, um, she says that, that if she stands aside now that would be seen as a sort of implication that she was involved in something wrong or she did something that she shouldn't have done and so she still intends to, to stand for the Fine Gael leadership. But I think 
rea- in reality, she probably wouldn't have the numbers to support her leadership. So why do people sometimes apply for jobs in the expectation that they're not going to get them? Uh, so they apply for, for other reasons. Why would Francis Fitzgerald and, and I suppose also Richard Bruton uh, do that? Is that to so that they will still have some power or something to negotiate uh, under a new leader? Yeah, well, the reality is that when, when Enda Kenny stands down as leader of Fine Gael, it won't just be a change of leader that the party will be faced with. The party will be faced with an entire generational shift. And Francis Fitzgerald and Richard Bruton could be seen as the biggest losers in that scenario. When Enda Kenny does decide to stand down, um, which seems to be yet another uh, some time away by, the, by all um, the signs, it looks like he'll be here till mid-April. Um, but when he does stand aside... Uh, Michael Noonan will likely stand aside with him. However, Francis Fitzgerald and Richard Bruton want to play an active role in whoever replaces Enda Kenny. And so they're probably keeping their name in the hat for that reason, to stay on the front, to stay on the cabinet, um, to stay in significant roles in cabinet um, and probably trying to gain as much support as they can so that they can lobby uh, Simon Coveney and Leo Varadkar for their support. Should a four-horse race transpire, Pat, what effect, how does that differ, if at all, from the two? horse race which essentially most people think it is I don't think it'll affect the final choice which will come down to uh, either Simon Coveney or Leo Varadkar what it does is it, it makes the race a bit less predictable um, Fine Gael party itself would have to work out uh, which I understand it's in the process of doing how the mechanics of that race would win because it's that a, could be quite complex with its three three because parts there's, there's, it's a three part as you say a three part election there's um, 65% of the uh, of the votes made up from the parliamentary party 25% for from the members and what does that Ten, leave 10%, 10% for the uh, for the councillors so it the, the the party will have to work out the mechanics obviously if it's a two horse race it's very simple but if it is a a four horse race which, which allows for representation and all the that two, yeah. between mm. uh, between candidates that could become uh, immensely complicated not presumably beyond the giant brains uh, in Fine Gael headquarters to work out but certainly a lot less straightforward than uh, a two horse race and given the perceived impetus within Fine Gael to get this done as quickly as possible when the Taoiseach uh, returns from, uh, from, from Washington when he will make his intentions clear and everyone expects he will announce a, a date for his resignation, then certainly a four-horse race could, uh, could complicate things. But as, as to the eventual choice... I mean, I think that there, there is no choice really between a generational shift. The party has already made that choice that uh, it will be at the end of the Kenny Noonan generation, which Richard Bruton and Francis Fitzgerald are also part of. Uh, it will be the end of their period in party leadership and the torch will pass to the next uh, to the next generation. That decision is clearly already been made as to who becomes the torch bearer or not. That will be the business of the forthcoming weeks. I think weeks. there is a four-horse uh, race, so it will probably serve to, 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 to damage Simon Coveney in, in particular because Simon Coveney is relying on um, the se- senior levels in the party to support him in his candidacy. And the Kennyites. The Kennyites, yeah, mm. of which Francis Fitzgerald is a, a loyal servant of. Um, you know, I think if Leo, Leo Radker has a significant level of support from the parliamentary party, which are 
Radcar fanatics. Simon Coveney is relying on people like Michael Noonan, Pascal Donoghue, um, Francis Fitzgerald and indeed Simon Harris um, to, to lend their support to his campaign um, and, in, and hopefully win it for him. However, if there's a four horse race and Richard Bruton and Francis Fitzgerald stand for the Fine Gael leadership, Coveney will probably be be the uh, the one who is affected um, in this race because although the votes would return in a PR system, wouldn't they? Finally, to him, assuming, assuming that a straightforward PR system within those blocks is what is uh, is what is decided, but that remains to be. So, is there uh, is there a potential for a political battle over how that electoral system actually works, in that it might benefit one candidate rather than another? Well, I think, as far as I'm aware, Fiat had a piece in the paper on Saturday which suggested that the, the National Executive met last week to um, outline the mechanics of it in the sense that there be no postal ballot, that the uh, votes for the parliamentary party will take place on the same day as the votes for the councillors um, because there was some sort of concern that uh, the parliamentary party would have some level of undue influence over the uh, councillors. So I think that's to happen on the same day. But everything aside from that seems to remain to be ironed out. Um, Whether one system would uh, benefit one candidate, it's very hard to see, I suppose. I think what what could potentially uh, damage one candidate is if this becomes a wider race, if it does, if Leo, if Leo Radker and Simon Coveney are faced with the challenge from Richard Bruton, we won't get a sense of who you know who would be suited by particular uh, types of electoral contest until it goes into the field. There's due to be a number of, of hustings around uh, around the country, and uh, it, it seems that there's likely to be polling stations in uh, in every constituency. Uh, Right. It's a, it's a political be, correspondence be, dream, really. Like isn't South it? Africa in 1994. Uh, by the, by, by, They'll be by queuing the around the block to vote, <laughs> really. Yeah. Sarah, it's only a couple of days ago that Pat and myself were discussing the Irish Times poll, which showed somewhat to my surprise that um, Coveney was slightly ahead of Veradker in the in the public preference. Obviously, they're not the people who are going to make the decision. But does that uh, does that have any impact, maybe, on the way that Fine Gael members and Parliamentary Party might think? In that the perception was that. Leo was the kind of was the sexy option that would appeal to the electorate. Uh, yes, um, it does have it does have an impact. Sorry, just giggling there at you referring to Leo Fradkar as the sexy option. Um, well, you know, given the, cho- <laughs> given, given the choices available, all things being relevant. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it does make an impact because, as you said, uh, the the uh, winning. The winning argument for Leo Varadkar's campaign to become Fine Gael leader is that um, when people anticipate that it is his face on the election posters um, around the country whenever a general election is called, that will automatically win Fine Gael votes. So it did come as some surprise to most of us that Simon Coveney was ahead uh, of Leo Varadkar in terms of public support. Now, Rightly so, a lot of people are suggesting that has that has to do with the fact that Simon Coveney was in the news a lot um, in the week that the poll was taken. So Simon Coveney was facing down Fianna Fáil on water charges, which would have obviously um, w- would have gained traction and support amongst the Fine Gael membership and indeed people who were opposed to Fianna Fáil's position on water charges. So he was putting up quite the fight and that was reflected in the media's coverage. Um, so that could that could potentially it could be as simple as that. That really, I noticed also there was a substantial preference for Coveney among Fianna Fáil voters, <laughs> and uh, a, a substantial preference uh, for for Simon Coveney among, amongst members of Fine Gael sixty five and over, which I thought was quite interesting because people sixty five and over don't tend to change their their minds um, quite uh, quite often. About anything about anything, they're quite rigid in their in their beliefs. So I think what actually is happening is. Um, 
Coveney has a significant level of support amongst the members and indeed the, the councillors of which we have neglected because we've been focusing primarily on the uh, support that the Leo Varadkar has in the parliamentary party. And actually the, the, the poll on Saturday, um, I knew it was significant when I woke up on Saturday morning to members of the uh, Coveney committee, as they're called, um, wringing their hands in glee at the prospect of Simon Coveney beating Leo Varadkar amongst uh, the public because that was Varadkar's main argument and the poll showed that it's not as strong an argument as he had of, uh, hoped for. Right, well that, I that, think one, that one just a, a note of caution on, on the poll, given that uh, you know, you're know you you're dealing with smaller sample sizes and Fine Gael voters and that, you know, some measure of caution, I think it was tremendously interesting and gave us a good benchmark of where the poll or where the contest is at the moment. But given the tightness of... Uh, the, the, of the numbers as between the two principal candidates I don't think one can say much more with great certainty other than you know they are very close with a marginal uh, uh, you know a marginal advantage for Simon Coveney among certain cohorts Right well we shall see sounds exciting um, Meanwhile for the moment Enda Kenny will be paying his final trip to the White House for the traditional St. Patrick's Day uh, celebrations. Um, Simon, you've done a few of these things. Uh, is this one going to be rather different from the ones th- that Enda's I, been to before? I think it's safe to say that it will be very <laughs> different uh, given the current incumbent in the White House. Yeah, President Donald Trump, uh, you have to check yourself sometimes saying that, but yeah, President Donald Trump will be... Um, Will be uh, hosting for the first time, so I think you're going so to see. So he'll be he'll be sticking a little bit of tape onto the back of his bright green tie uh, next next Thursday. Well, I think there could be a very uh, very green tie being worn by Donald Trump. Um, yeah, it's going to be a very interesting one. I mean, the Shamrock Summit is always. Uh, I mean, it's it's a bit of a circus anyway. It's action packed day in Washington. You know, starts with uh, the Taoiseach meeting the Vice President uh, and then going on to the White House. And it looks like it, the, the the pattern is not going to change at all this year. There is the breakfast being lined up at the Naval Observatory which is the residence of the um, of the Vice President Mike Pence this year so that breakfast will go ahead and that's usually an opportunity for the teacher to rub shoulders with the great and good of, of Irish American the Irish American community and of course Mike Washington. Pence like his predecessor Joe Biden has strong Irish connections yeah he has he's connections with Sligo he's connections with Clare uh, he's famously the only member of Congress to have, who can brag about having cut turf and tended bar in County Clare when he was a younger man so he's very proud of that very proud of his Irish roots so I think uh, I think actually the guest list would be very interesting rather than not so much that Pence is himself hosting but it'll be interesting to see who's at those tables those four or five tables in that very small room in the Naval Observatory uh, you know, traditionally it's been Democrats obviously because of the connections with, with, with Ireland you know, you'd see the likes of Pat Leahy uh, uh, Uncle Pat uh, yes. Uncle Pat to uh, our own uh, political editor uh, so Pat Leahy uh, the oldest serving senator from Vermont he's a figure uh, fixture in the in this uh, the Paddy's Day breakfast every year so It'd be interesting to see if uh, he's invited along. If there's a spirit of bipartisanship, that which is usually, I mean, traditionally the day is cross party. Uh, it started the speakers' lunch started in Congress with Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan, and that was an attempt to kind of hands across the divide and an opportunity for Democrats and the Republicans to come together. So it'd be interesting to see just how bipartisan it is this but year. But let's look at also, you know, there's obviously there's the unpredictability of Donald Trump himself, so that you know who knows what may or may not happen. But there's also the fact that on the day when and Kenny's presenting the bowl of Shamrock. The new executive order um, barring people from six Muslim-majority countries and barring all refugees from the United States for the next three months comes into effect. So that's 
there, surely people are going to be looking at the, these two events, this celebration of the Irish-American diaspora and the immigrant experience on the one hand and this fact on the other. And then you add to that the fact that Angela Merkel, I think, will have been in the White House only two days, two days previously yeah. and there has been serious friction between uh, between Trump and Merkel over immigration policy more broadly. Surely there's going to be a focus on that whole issue of the Trump approach to uh, to race, to immigration, uh, to all the to, to globalization. It, it, it's going to be unavoidable, really, for 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 Andy Kenny. I mean, can he just smile his way through it? No, he can't. He he has to make some reference to it. The fact, as you say, it's the day the ban comes into effect. Um, I, I think he can't go there. It's a day that the celebration of 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 immigration to the United States, celebration of of a tradition of immigration that goes back decades, and this event itself is a long-standing fixture in the calendar. Um, Enda Kenny needs to make some reference to it. And I think if we're looking for a guide as to how we might frame his remarks, uh, Charlie Flanagan, the Minister for Foreign Affairs, was in Washington in January and he met uh, uh, the since-departed National Security Advisor, Mike Flynn. And he made some public remarks during that trip and Charlie Flanagan made the point. I thought it was a good way of framing it. He said, you know, Ireland and the US have been friends a long time and the great thing about close friends is that we can say things that the other friend does not like. And that's a good way of framing it. I think you're going to see similar language from the Taoiseach around then uh, in the Oval Office remarks. But, I mean, it, it's going to be a lot of pressure on the Taoiseach that day with the immigration ban coming in. And here he is uh, representing a country that has, you know, 40 million Americans claim Irish heritage. So he really needs to say something. I think. Another thing is there will be demonstrations across the country, across the United States on that day. Have a listen to the mayor of Boston, Martin O'Malley, speaking on Morning Ireland. Chuck, but also Irish members and Irish American members of Congress not to show up and not to... Uh, uh, not to condone the sort of anti-immigrant rhetoric and behavior that Donald Trump has brought to the White House. It's disgusting. It absolutely runs counter to everything that the Irish-American immigrant experience and the immigrant experience in the United States has been all about for these last 240 years in our country. So, Pat, that puts further pressure on Enda Kenny, doesn't it, if there are various demonstrations and things happening around? Enda Kenny loves going... uh, to America. He loves going to the White House. He probably loved it a little bit less this time with Simon not uh, not there and Barack Obama not there. But um, uh, and, and the Americans appear to like Enda Kenny's brand of bonhomie. Bonhomie uh, is probably the best way of putting it. But I think this is a much more difficult political assignment for him on this trip than he's ever had before. He's on a tightrope. He cannot go and gratuitously insult his hosts. He will not be Taoiseach for much longer, but another Irish Taoiseach will have to deal with this American president and future uh, American presidents. And he cannot, uh, Enda Kenny cannot jeopardise uh, that, uh, his advisors uh, uh, would, would, would say, and civil servants would say, that he cannot go and jeopardise that privileged access that uh, Irish leaders and policymakers have with their American counterparts. On the other hand, there is a political imperative, as Simon says, to take a stand, to say something uh, in disagreement with the many of the policies, particularly on immigration, but not just on immigration, being uh, followed by the Trump administration. So it's a very, very difficult political tightrope that Enda Kenny will be walking. And you add to that, Sarah, just the extraordinary phenomenon that is Donald Trump, so that when he's in the room with Donald Trump, 
we don't necessarily know what Donald Trump's going to say. So however carefully scripted his approach may be to the to these things, there is that element of the unknown. Yes, indeed. And we certainly don't know if Donald Trump would even listen to Endicani if Endicani does decide to raise any point. I think, you know, for those of us who have followed the Taoiseach for a number of years, known that, know um, that I suppose he is quite subtle in his criticisms of others. I mean, I was with um, Simon last year when we went in Washington when the Taoiseach travelled for quite a brief uh, trip to to meet Barack Obama and his last um, and his last time as for Paddy's day in in office, and um, the two have quite had quite a you know a pleasant uh, exchange. Um, I think what will what will happen. Uh, this time will be remarkably different. But I also think, though, it does raise a number of other points because the guest list will be incredibly important. And indeed, the guest list for the St. Patrick's Day reception in the White House, because that raises a number of points for Jerry Adams, Mary Lou MacDonald, who have been invited um, in successive years. Will they attend if they're invited again? They've said they, they so have they said that they will, mm. but the invitation hasn't been uh, issued to them as of yet. So I suppose that is quite important as well as to the people who normally are invited. I mean, the year the, the year that I was there last year, FAI Chief Executive John Delaney was there. Jerry Adams couldn't get into the, the White House, had a bit of difficulty there, but Mary Lou uh, did attend. There were a number of political leaders, another number of business leaders, um, social uh, socialites, for want of a better phrase, um, from from Ireland who had travelled over, especially for this visit. So yeah, I think it's going to be I'm quite interesting. I'm predicting Michael Flatley is going to be there, by the way. Um, listen, we should leave it there. Unfortunately, we have to we'll talk further on this matter, I think, next week, because it will be right in the run-up to St. Patrick's Day. But thanks to Pat, to Simon and to Sarah for joining us today. And that's it for this edition of Inside Politics. Thanks to our producer Declan Conlon and engineer JJ Vernon. Remember, you can mail me at hlinhan at irishtimes.com or you can find me on Twitter. But until the next time, goodbye and thanks very much indeed for listening.